CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. The community of horror creatives is a close one. There are a lot of things that bind writers, directors, and actors in the genre. We've discussed it before, but our genre is really of, for, and by outsiders. There's little respect in our little gutter other than when it makes a ton of money. Films and books that delve into our fears make us uncomfortable, confront us with the dark underbelly of an otherwise sunny society. We seek truth, we seek exorcism, we seek a cleansing confrontation with death, therapy that helps us understand loss and sorrow. Sure, sometimes a cinematic bloodbath is fun and outrageous and a test of our mettle. But the best, most memorable journeys into the dark side are the ones that seek meaning in what can seem a meaningless world. But another thing that seems to bind us is a common sensitivity. For all the spilling of blood and rending of bodies, the horror crowd can be a pretty open-hearted group. You'd be amazed how many of your favorite genre authors and filmmakers get dizzy at the sight of real blood. I remember being on the set of Takashi Miike's episode of Masters of Horror when he was being enormously careful not to subject a child actress to anything that might be too troubling for her and to take pains to show her that it's all rubber and make-believe. For all of his wildly violent and graphic movies, Rob Zombie is an animal-loving vegan. For that matter, you'd be surprised how many of the horror crowd are vegan, from me to Don Coscarelli to Alejandro Bruges to Axel Carolyn and well beyond. The creators I know are tame of heart and generous of spirit and deed. Most of them have pets they adore and are there when family and friends need them most, just like you. The horror fans and creators alike are intelligent, sensitive, and enthusiastic human beings who belie the aggressive, rip-roaring genre we all embrace. True violence and horror are reprehensible, despicable. The state of affairs in the world is at its most divisive and angry. Spilling cinematic blood and creating a release valve means as much to the makers as it does to the audience. Though the mainstream world at large hates and fears the horror community that we are a part of, I'd rather meet up on a dark, deserted street with a horror director who taps into our fears to release them than one of those horror haters who suppresses it, then goes out and shoots a dozen kids in a school. Our guest on Postmortem is a visionary as well as a filmmaker. Richard Stanley has lived one of the oddest and most fascinating lives of anyone I know, in or out of the filmmaking community. He hit big on the festival circuit with his first feature, had a nightmare experience on his second, and has rebounded a couple of decades later with the masterful color out of space. We'll talk with Richard about his incredible journey after this. It's 2020, and surfing the web is dead. All the horror news you need is now just one click away. 
Fangoria.com is your first destination for all the horror news of the day, featuring a constant curation of the Fango team's favorite links from across the internet. You'll also find deep dives and daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, as well as exclusive access to the Fangoria Vault. Check out Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Use promo code POSTMORTEM for 15% off right now. From visionary horror director Osgood Perkins and an executive producer of Insidious comes Gretel and Hansel. Forget the fairy tale you know and witness a dark and twisted adaptation of the beloved story. Sophia Lillis of It stars in Gretel and Hansel in theaters nationwide on January 31st. Visit GretelandHanselTheMovie.com for more. So, Richard, you came out of the gate with a movie that was a sensation at film festivals. Uh, this was hardware. It got a great theatrical release. People loved it. The reviews were great. It made money. Along comes Dust Devil, which is even more Richard Stanley at his purest. And then in the hands of the Weinsteins, it all came apart. Tell me how that experience affected you. Well, I guess I... Um started on hardware the same year I got back from Afghanistan in 1989, so I often think hardware is what I got inst in instead of PTSD or um, <laughs> inst instead of therapy. Uh. And I think the demented state that I was in, I was still in my early 20s, really contributes to the, the state of hysteria that um, the movie exists in. It um, probably um, distinguishes itself from the the other um, Alien and Terminator um, imitators of that period just through its... Um, At the time, did it feel therapeutic to you after coming back from Afghanistan? I, I had no opportunity to even think about it. Hmm. I was literally um, so living in the now. I was for a while sleeping underneath a table in the production office and in the daytime drawing storyboards all across the walls. That I, it, it was clearly therapeutic, but I, that wouldn't have occurred to me at the time. I was moving too fast, and um, now it's like looking at a black box recording from some kind of um, mid-air collision or something. <laughs> it's difficult to fully figure out all of the weird currents that went into that production. And for any number of reasons, hardware was a, um, a crazy little movie that um, punched above its weight. It was only um, 800 grand at the time, well under a million. And um, all of us thought it would go um, direct to video and would um, surface in the nearest um, video dustbin. But so here you go to these festivals and suddenly there are crowds filling the cinemas, watching your movie and cheering and giving this response that had to have been uh, astounding to you. I was super surprised. I mean, right from the beginning, I didn't expect um, hardware to go out in the 700 print release that um, Miramax gave it. And I, I remember I almost wanted to apologize to audiences when I saw <laughs> round the block queues. I kept wanting to say, listen, this isn't a student. This is like a student movie. <laughs> um, the average age on set was probably um, 16. I know the principal um, wow. gore effects guy, um, Chris Cunningham, who went on to do the Aphex Twins videos, had his 16th birthday on the um, on the shoot. Oh my god! So, um, and we did the um, computer animation, the very early um, wireframe animation that was going on in 1989 on a school computer. So it was very much a, a crazy labor of love, and um, somehow ended up on um, screens all across America. And so there you were. 
And the Weinsteins thanked you by letting you do your second movie and ripping it apart and cutting it and recutting it. And did it ever really get finished during that time? Um, Dust Devil had a very um, troubled transition from um, page to screen. Um, one of the reasons for that was the parent company making the film, um, Palace Films in the UK, and their subsidiary, which made Dust Devil, Palace Devil Limited, both um, went bankrupt in the course of shooting the film. And oh, and they were a great company. They, they were a great really company, really fantastic yeah. work. Yeah, Palace was sadly forced under by um, a multinational by Polygram who foreclosed mm. on some outstanding debts, which oh, meant dear. that um, by the time we reached the end of the shoot, there was literally no company that was prepared to pick up the tab for mm. um, post-production on Dust Devil, which meant that Miramax took the cutting copy we had, um, simply worked within the cutting copy to try to um, create their own um, Miramax cut. So did um, Miramax come into it during production or in post-production, or were they a part of the inception? Miramax were there from the beginning in, uh, on both um, Hardware and Dust Devil, and that they were the um, principal finances. So when um, Palace Films went under, they were pretty much left holding the baby, and um, it put us in a very, um, a very vulnerable position. It took me about two years in the UK to go around and to the various um, post-production facility houses that were holding the sound and holding mm. the cutting copy and the different pieces of the movie to slowly get the, um, the original materials back together to um, properly cut and master the movie. But while we were doing that to try and get a return on their investment, Miramax had taken a copy of the cutting copy of the movie and had made their own um, cut working only within that cutting copy, which oh meant that they could never include new scenes. They could only nothing make could it be shorter extended and shorter. Or, nothing could mm. be extended. Mm. So ironically, some of the scenes they included are still quite rough cut and are, are looser than the scenes that we ended up um, um, fine cutting once we had um, access to the materials. Then after about um, three years, I finally succeeded in gaining access to the, the negative of the film, and we cut the negative, which is something that um, filmmakers are never allowed to do normally. Right. Because, um, and this is long after it's been released in theaters, in its yeah, it, aborted... It had a very patchy release. There's a massive difference between the two cuts accordingly. I think it's something like a 40-minute um, difference in running time. Well, you are an auteur. I mean, your films are sort of like a psychiatric profile of you. And this had to be agonizing for you to go through because it's not only your baby, it's a part of you, right? Yeah, very hard to abandon these things because they, they do feel like... Um like children in some weird way, and um, Dust Devil felt like a sort of forceps delivery, a child that had its <laughs> head slightly crushed on arrival. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> that soft uh, that wasn't skull. quite right, and the, uh, the desire to just ignore it and pretend that um, it never happened was quite strong for the first two years. And, and um, yet, how can you do that? Exactly. It's you like, spent years of this, and it was an original screenplay that came specifically from you. And um, and here you are having it disemboweled by the financiers. Yeah, it's been a long, long battle, which um, I guess continues to this day. Thanks to um, getting the support of the um, original backers of the film, we were able to um, deliver the, um, a completed cut to um, the European investors and to um, oh, wow. Channel 4 Television in the UK, who um, screened it back in the day. Well, this the, was made in, in 92, and, yeah. and you didn't get a cut your cut that you called your cut until 2006, I believe, right? Well, it didn't go on to DVD until 2006. Right. We had a theatrical copy that ran in the, um, the UK and at festivals. 
in fact, the only theatrical copy because there was only ever one married answer print struck from mm. the um, from the original leg. So that floated around. But um, at this point in time, we've now got an awkward situation where um, Dust Devil on on Blu-ray and in most DVD iterations is the um, the, the full length authorized director's cut. Oh, good! But the version that's available on streaming in most territories is the Miramax cut. Oh, ouch! Which is awkward. Yeah. So, um, All for, right, another another blow for physical media. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole there's a whole legal morass underlying that in terms of the original master copies. I've pretty much thrown it open by saying anyone who wants to reproduce the um, the original the full Dust Devil cut is welcome to the masters. But most of the people who've gotten their hands on streaming rights are happy just to. Um, just go from whatever um, mm. digital master they have. Mm. So there's still two versions of um, Dust Devil out there, um, one of which makes quite a lot more sense than the other. Well, hopefully Shudder or someone will come in and get the streaming rights the right way. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a less than ideal um, sophomore entry on my behalf, and, and um, it left me fairly vulnerable in the next project. I bounced from um, Dust Devil onto the island of Dr. Moreau. Yes, which is thrilling. And the punchline is a great one that I'll let you deliver that, you know, you you were let go from a film that you worked hard on developing and creating. And yet you left your stamp on this movie. The Island of Dr. Moreau is a, one of the great, I think, unmade projects in that um, there have been various... Even though it's been made three times. Yeah, yes. and it's also been the, the inspiration for, I think, every single story where there's a, a mad scientist working alone on a <laughs> tropical island with a... Um, I mean, even Jurassic Park contains some Dr. Moreau DNA. Thank you, H.G. So Wells. Yeah, it's yeah. hugely influential, yeah, from the hand of H.G. Wells, the man who invented time travel, amongst other things. So uh, a true... Um, a true genius and a, a, visionary, uh, a, a visionary who innovated so many of the, the generic tropes that we're still dealing with. Well, tell me how you wrought a little bit of revenge on the island of Dr. Moreau after John Frankenheimer took the helm. Yeah, the, the Moreau project blossomed, uh, um, particularly after um, Marlon Brando came aboard to, pay, to play Moreau. As initially conceived, I think it started as something like an $18 million movie. And um, by the time it had finished bigging itself up and had gone to New Line, it ended up somewhere in the realms of 75 million Ouch. by, um, yeah, 1995 um, standards. Mm-hmm. Um, had I, well, if I was coming off the back of a huge hit at that time, um, things would have been a lot easier for me. Like I can't imagine, say, um, Apocalypse Now might have happened if um, Francis Ford Coppola had not been coming off the back of the two Godfather movies. Right, I right. was coming in off the back of Dust Devils. So, uh, <laughs> the Miramax uh, version yeah, of I, Dust Devils. It was really winged a prayer and the, just the fact that, <laughs> um, that Marlon kind of liked me. Um, initially, the plan was to replace me with Roman Polanski. Really? The, yeah, that was the first person who was put in, who was put in charge as director once um, Brando came aboard. Mm. And I went through all kinds of hoops to um, displace Polanski and get back onto the movie, which I managed to do for about one year. Well, tell me a little about those hoops. That's that's a side of things we never hear. Well, the very first thing I'd heard was that um, um, basically a um, million dollars had been placed in escrow to get Brando to read the script. That was his price. You had to show him the money at that point To read time. the script. To, to read and to, uh, <laughs> to favor the project. Of course, once you, you had Brando's name to conjure with, he was a cast magnet, which then enabled one to bring everyone else aboard, and the project happened pretty fast as a result, but that was... 
So was Val deal. Kilmer your choice? Um, Val was kind of a standby choice because, um, right, and it's very in its initial conception. The first person we went after was Bruce Willis at that point in time. Oh. The initial cast was supposed to be Marlon Brando, um, Bruce Willis as the castaway, and James Woods for um, Mr. Montgomery for um, Moreau's assistant. Wow. But then um, when um, Bruce dropped out at the last moment, partially because of unwillingness to um, go to Australia at that point in his life, wow. uh, he ended up staying in America and doing The Sixth Sense instead. Ah. It meant we had to replace him at the last moment for comparable stars. So um, Val was the, um, the next available person that mm -hmm. we went to at that point in order to hold the deal together. Um, Val's um, schedule meant he couldn't play the, um, the lead man who was effectively in every single scene of the movie because of it's coming from a, a 19th, 19th century source material of a, a first-person narrator. Right, and, right. Um, Val simply didn't have the time to, um, to devote to the project. So um, we ended up um, casting him in the role of Mr. Montgomery, the former James Woods part, and um, recasting the, um, the ostensible leading man who ended up being um, played by David Thewlis. In the, um, right, an the amazing British actor, yeah. Yeah. Naked um, is one of my favorite things he's ever done. Yeah, so um, Moreau started to sort of um, unravel as it went along, and um, I really the... Um, the death blow for um, my tenure on Moreau it was a combination of um, um, Brando's personal problems um, before he arrived on set, a number of disastrous things happened, starting with right. the murder in Mulholland Drive and um, running through to the, um, the suicide of Cheyenne, his daughter, which happened about one week before we were supposed to start um, oh principal photography. God. Uh, simultaneously, we were hit by a, by a hurricane in um, in our location in far north Queensland, ah. which limited the amount of um, weather cover and the, the amount of stuff we could actually shoot. We couldn't go into many of the sets because um, either the makeup effects were not ready on, on mm -hmm. schedule, or um, of course because um, Mr. Brando was not available. <laughs> and um, at the same time, we couldn't shoot outside because it was kind of horizontal rain going on. So um, we got ourselves pinned down in a situation where it was virtually impossible to shoot anything. Um, so how much did you shoot before it changed hands? I shot about three days worth of material, uh. almost none of which was used in the movie. There was some um, stuff we shot before the commencement of principal photography, which um, vaguely finds its way into the movie. <laughs> I had a, um, a long-running plan where I wanted to um, shoot... Um, a very different kind of shark attack at the movie, and I'd hired on um, Ron and Valerie Taylor, the um, oh from Jaws, yeah, yeah. And from Blue Water, White Death, the, yes, the um, the, the husband and wife um, team who are so expert at um, create at shooting real great white shark footage. Fantastic! And we had built um, miniature kicking people. Um, we had miniature. Uh, I thought, okay, rather than having a mechanical shark as in Jaws, let's try and use rail sharks and mechanical <laughs> people. And switch, switched around, and that way around, we could scale down the, the 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 kicking, struggling people, and oh. use some um, smaller sharks. But at the same time, to, uh, my intention was to try to create a, a sort of feeding frenzy with um, with mechanical puppets. That's brilliant. Uh, which, but did the sharks respond to the puppets? Um, not great. It's like I know I not much beating heart and blood coursing through them. Yeah, yeah I mean, they, they, I think they take the arm off one of the puppets in the <laughs> in the Frankenheimer movie. I wanted to take a leg, and um, there's only a there's only a few um, a few feet of it left in the um, in the Frankenheimer movie. But there is a little glimpse of the Ron Valerie Taylor stuff that was shot in shot in prep. 
and some of that and some of the um, helicopter work of the um, uh, just of the um, the location uh, remains in the movie. Any, anything we shot with the um, human characters was discarded, largely because of the way the film was recast and um, the continuity changed once um, the Frankenheimer took over as the director. The moment they changed wardrobe choices and changed the casting around, it meant that um, they could no longer match to the material that um, we'd shot already, so it was pretty much a complete discard. Now, also, the Polanski the, thing was during pre-production, or did he actually come in to shoot anything after you had shot your three days? No, that was a, uh, purely in pre-production. Mm -hmm. That was the very first move they made when Brando agreed to do the movie. Okay. Um, was the, the first thing I heard is Marlon Brando's doing the film and Roman Polanski's going to be directing it. How did you get it back? Um, I insisted that I sh on the right to have one meeting with um, Brando to try and convince him that I should be directing the movie and, um, and not Polanski. And it worked. And it worked. It was a, it was a, a real long shot. And um, I remember being um, scolded by Mike DeLuca from New Line and a bunch of different people for even trying it on. And I realize now that they were right, that had I accepted the situation at that point, um, it probably would have been a better movie. Because if Polanski had been on from the beginning, it would have at least given them a year of prep time right. to um, try and get it together. And I would have ended up as the screenwriter on a Roman Polanski movie um, rather than in the, um, the state of affairs that right. I finally that, ended up in. So um, I failed to take the other one's advice at that point in time and doggedly tried to get the film back and um, managed to... Um, connive my way into a, a, a meeting with the big man at his house in Mulholland Drive and then um, successfully made my pitch. Um, for whatever insane reason, uh, he eventually decided that he only wanted to do the movie if I was the director. I uh, can't tell why that is. Uh, possibly it was uh, his way of um, making fun of um, the powers that be or um, <laughs> deliberately um, doing something which was he knew was going to... Um, irritate the um the backers um <laughs> but you bonded creatively we did and i got had the chance to um smuggle in bottles of tequila to his house in mulholland <laughs> drive and um get drunk with a big man which i i really don't regret in hindsight it was one of the, <laughs> i um, should think not. the best experiences of um the whole moreau project oh, i only yeah. wish that i had covertly wired myself for, um, for sound the, because <laughs> really I, it was a colorful conversation it was and uh, yeah, enough so that there were two callbacks on it that um, I got I started getting telephone calls from the big man to come back up to the house and um, wow. somehow we started to um, develop the strange relationship which may have been partly because he was trying to imitate my accent <laughs> I sometimes had the sense that he was keeping me around just long enough to try to you were a character study yeah, yeah. He, he kept wondering which school I was from when I note in the movie, he's got this very odd nasal um, British accent thing that floats it out, and I often think that's a, one influence. And uh, yet you're South African. You yeah, I didn't really South give Africa. that away, but at that yes. point in time, I was pretending very hard to be English. I was born in, <laughs> I was born in South Africa. I um, deserted the South African army when I was 16 and claimed political asylum in, in England. Wow. And, um, but at that time, um, I was um, pretending to be English pretty much. Well, we've... We will talk more about this colorful life that I know you have led, or many colorful lives that you have led thus far. But with the uh, Moreau situation, what happened? How did it actually change hands? What was the root of the problem? What did they say to you when they said, we're stopping production? 
Well, it was clear that um, we couldn't shoot. A, a situation arose where after three days, um, and the rain kept falling, that we were, and there were no sets available. And but these um, were acts of God. Yeah, there were acts of God, but at the same time, it was uh, it was likely that a shutdown of the um, production was going to happen anyway. Mm. Another problem was that Brando himself couldn't be found at oh, that well. point. Nobody could actually reach him. Um, the previous movie he'd been working on in Ireland, Divine Rapture, had, been, had also been closed down. Uh, oh, and then dear. later, rather than reviving it, given that nobody nobody could get the big man back into the movie, and, um, no one was sure at that point whether... Um, whether or not he was even capable of working. There was a, a fear that he'd had a nervous breakdown and um, was simply incapable of going on. And um, Divine Rapture was eventually written off as an insurance loss and the film mm. was never completed. So how so, long was Moreau shut down? Um, Moreau was, I think, shut down for about two months. Ah. There was a frightening period of time where um, everyone was looking for a new Moreau at first. I, I, at one of my last actions before being um, told to cease and desist was to reach out to Robert Duval in the hope that we could oh. try to replace Brando at the, um, at the last moment. Interesting then, choice. Um, it's difficult to find anyone big enough to step into those rather outsized shoes. I mean, mm. it's very much the the Orson Welles part. It's a part that in the past has been played by Burt Lancaster and Charles Lawton. It's a, a towering role. So, um, Giant shoes. That's right, yeah. So uh, it, we had a huge Marlon Brando-shaped hole in our movie at that point in time. And really the um, powers that be, New Line and their parent company, Time Warner, had only tolerated me because I was the key to bringing Brando to the, to the, to the set mm. uh, when I couldn't deliver on that. And Brando was nowhere to be found and uncontactable in any way. So Suddenly, um, my own value, given that I had no pr no money sunk into the production, and, uh, there was nothing really that I could give them. Um, yeah, dwindled to the point where um, I guess um, it was easy for them to um, replace me. Um, they also replaced the entire shooting crew, um, hmm. the DP, um, the screenwriter, the composer, and the editor. So they didn't want anybody who had a fealty to you. Yeah, it was just an, there was a, 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 a gut assumption that maybe we, they should just shove the first production aside and um, start over with a, um, a different group. Well, little did New Line and Warner Brothers know that you weren't done with this movie. You were there uh, as production went on. Maybe not recognizably Richard Stanley, but you were there. You were one of the creatures. Yeah, I mean, there was a series of mistakes made in the way that um, New Line organized that situation. And in the course of it all, um, I ended up um, living out in the rainforest in far north Queensland. Rather than going home, I um, stayed near the location. This was partially because all of the principal cast members who were actually there had been held to contract and weren't allowed to return home until the um, production was resumed. So many of my friends and people who I'd persuaded to personally to take part in the project, and this includes um, Feruza Balk and um, Ron Perlman and uh -huh. um, yeah, Tamara Morrison, Marco Hofschneider, Bill Hootkins, many people that I felt personally um, responsible for um, getting involved in the project were now stranded without a script and basically um, told to wait uh, virtual prisoners on the island of Dr. Moreau, <laughs> uh, simply taking the pay-or-play deal and taking the money from New Line and going home and leaving everyone stuck there in um, th this um, tropical hell um, did not seem fair. So instead I took a step back and um, waited in the rainforest to see what would happen and kept in, secretly in touch with um, some of the principal cast members. Then when um, shooting resumed, 
<clears throat> word filtered back to me, and I heard that um, yeah, John Frankenheimer had been um, put on as director, and then I also heard that if anything, um, the state the state of affairs on set was even more chaotic and even more disastrous than when I'd been in charge. And um, I remember one of the dogmen. Um, who was a, a former driver named Lewis, a, a guy who had actually been originally on art department. He'd been fired off art department for getting into fist fight in pre-production. <laughs> He'd come back in and been rehired as a driver. He was the driver who um, attempted to rescue Feruza when the production was closed down initially, and she jumped in the first car she could find and ordered them to take her to Sydney, which was on the opposite side of Australia. <laughs> yeah, that's um, a bit of a drive. A <laughs> bit of a drive. When he delivered her to Sydney, he was promptly fired, uh, and then he managed to get himself rehired as a dogman. Um, I remember Lewis came and found me out in the rainforest and said, listen, you should go back and see what's going on uh, in your absence, and also brought me the um, the dog mask, the, um, the Stan Winston costume that enabled me to... Um, Disguise myself as one of the as one of the beast people, and infiltrate the production, <laughs> and then walk back on. Now, yeah, but the guy <laughs> the guy whose idea it was that former driver had already done that twice. He'd been fired off the production twice and had been rehired twice. Such was the state of chaos in the production, and there were so few people left on, the, on board the production. I think only the second AD was the same. Everyone else had been fired by then. That there was simply no one left to even recognise me, even if I wasn't wearing a mask. I'd, nev- <laughs> I'd never been introduced to Frankenheimer or to um, James Spardoletti, his first AD, so they simply had no idea who I was. And my my original cameraman, Daria Schwalski, had been replaced by Billy Fraker, who had brought his own technical crew. So they so it was um, really a completely new movie. So how long were you on the set of this? Other, you were a renegade on on their set, and how long did this take place without anyone knowing? I stayed through to the end. I stayed oh through. To the, I stayed through to the rap party. <laughs> Oh and um, at the rap party, I came out and um, wore my original suit and d- doffed the dog costume. I figured it was time to come out of drag. Yeah, <laughs> the coming out party. It was a fascinating thing because as a dog or as an extra, you, you people ignore you. Uh, when you're a creature um, or on set, people treat you like your furniture and they kind of forget that you're even there, which enabled <laughs> me to um, sit right next to um, Frankenheim or sit right next to Val without them really even noticing me. Uh, it was a, yeah, an extraordinary experience, similar to being in a, uh, the difference between a lucid dream and a nightmare. Well, that's something I wanted to touch on as well because dreams are very much a part of all of your films. And there's a sort of magical thinking and a cosmic, well, particularly when we get to the Lovecraft movie we'll talk about, but there's a cosmic element to all of your work. And it's spiritual. And I wonder, too, about the relationship of drugs and the stories you tell. And because it feels like there's a very strong influence of that. And would you agree with that? Well, I've always tried to structure my movies like um, drug trips, um, just because they're so, they're so brief. You've got um, between 90 and 120 minutes to um, to make one's point, and um, I like the idea of taking the audience from uh, their um, normal um, waking consciousness and trying to um, drag them into a, um, a, a different state of consciousness in the course, in the course of the movie. So generally, um, I tend to structure everything like um, like an LSD trip. Mm. But it's really also because I'm a huge fan of people like Toby Hooper. I, th- 
think Toby taught me how to structure structure things as much as anything else. I took one look at um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and its sequel, Part Two, and oh. realized, my God, that's so incredible. Uh, after he gets all the plot out of the way in twenty minutes, and then peaks and then <laughs> tries to go, go peak again and <laughs> build up one climax on top of another so uh, which gave me that that trippy structure where you you've got a very slow opening normally and you're sitting around thinking like as if you've just taken some weird pharmaceutical or edible is this working and I'm, I'm not really feeling anything and it seems oddly normal for the first 20 minutes and then little things start to show up and go wrong and then suddenly <laughs> the thing starts to um, come on really hard uh, gradually uh, peaks to some um, hysterical point of crisis, um, probably like the um, first-person death scene in Hardware, or um, mm. some of the stuff that happens around the well at the end of Color Out of Space. Well, Color Out of Space really starts in a very traditional way, and loses its mind quite beautifully as it goes along. It's probably the most traditional structure of your features that I've seen. Well, the the three features that you've done, um, and yet it becomes very much a Richard Stanley film. And it's great to, I think one of the goals of any filmmaker is to be able to have a specific and individual voice as a storyteller. And I think you've achieved that, and it happens beautifully in Color Out of Space, which couldn't have been expensive to make, but looks very, very rich and expensive. Yeah, Color Out of Space was probably um, the, the full t the full budget was around six million USD, which was um, coming out of a company in Kuala Lumpur. Um, really? Yeah, and about three million of that was above the line. Um, um, then really? we, we effectively had um, about three million USD to actually shoot the movie on, which wow. um, seemed fair enough um, yeah. when the deal was put to me. It was uh, a six weeks prep time. Six weeks shooting. Um, it's pretty quick. Yeah, and um, about three million USD. The main challenge was to try to recreate um, Arkham County, to recreate Lovecraft's New England. Well, um, you have done a lot of work from source material, from highly regarded source material, from great writers like H.G. Wells, like Clive Barker. You did. You were attached to the Damnation Game for a while. An amazing, amazing, rich quilt of a book that seems very Richard Stanley in its mystical elements as well. Um, so tell me a little bit about the complications, having known and worked with Stuart, uh, Stuart Gordon on uh, Masters of Horror and, and his great H.P. Lovecraft adaptations. You bring a cosmic element to it that has mostly been missing from... It, it's, people say unfilmable. H.P. Lovecraft is unfilmable. Color Out of Space is unfilmable. Obviously, that's not true. You've done it, and you've brought that quality to it. Tell me the challenges of that. Well, I always thought that assuming Lovecraft stories to be unfilmable was kind of laziness on behalf mm. of the various filmmakers. It was just a... And a lack a, of imagination, a, perhaps. A, a, an easy way out. I've gotten super tired of folk telling me that um, Call of Cthulhu and things are, 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 are uncrackable and Color Out of Space being one of those. I've been a fan of Lovecraft's work 
work ever since I was a child. I was probably introduced to his material as a, a seven or eight-year-old. I think I've probably got crayon drawings of his creatures that predate that even because my mother was a huge fan. Oh, wow. So thus she indoctrinated me into the mythos <laughs> from, uh, from a very, very early age. And um, thus, uh, like all fans, I've been eagerly awaiting someone to um, do a good job with um, the master's material. I've been a fan of Stuart's work ever since I saw Reanimator. Oh, yes. And, um, thus far, he's done the, um, it, it, the best work in, the, in, in this field. In fact, um, yeah, I was actually there in um, Galicia when they were shooting Dagon, um, Stuart's take on um, Shadow over Innsmouth. One um, of my favorites. Yeah. A lot of fun. And um, I also, to um, reiterate something we were talking about off mic earlier, I think um, Stuart's um, episode of Masters of Horror, um, Dreams in the Witch House, in particular the moment when um, the witch is familiar, Brown Jenkins scuttles between the angles between worlds and mm-hmm. gets into the student's room and runs up the spine of the book of, of string theory that's lying on his <laughs> chest and tries to get his attention and whispers in his ear, hey, hey, psst. Which I, I always thought was one of the most truly Lovecraftian things I'd ever seen in the movie. Ah, uh, Stuart is so great. Yeah, huge fan. But despite all that, I felt Stuart had never been all the way to the brink with uh, Lovecraft's principal idea, which is this notion of um, cosmic horror, or as I've been calling it lately, ecstatic cosmic horror, to try ah. and make it seem more appealing to the punters. <laughs> um, but this notion of um, trying to portray. Um, humanity's true position in the cosmos and um, the essential frailty of the human condition. And in this respect, Lovecraft and Wells actually are driving at a very similar place. Both both of them um, p- posit situations where um, characters, lone characters usually, are forced to confront um, things that they can't possibly deal with or have no hope of um, overcoming. Here I'm thinking the last man on the island of Dr. Moreau or mm. the last human being in dead London confronting the, the Martian fighting machines, which are themselves already dead, or the time traveler on the beach at the end of the world at the end of the time machine. Lovecraft's yeah. characters in a similar way are forced to peer into the void and are confronted with the, um, the incredible size of, of, of infinity and the, 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 the sheer vastness of the cosmos. And do um, you feel you've peered into that void? Certainly in color, we um, time and again I've tried to find ways of getting at that essential moment. I think maybe in color, one of my favorite iterations of it is the moment when um, Nathan, the Nick Cage character, reassures the kids it's all going to be okay and takes the shotgun and goes out to the barn to deal with the alpaca monster, which he really doesn't want to have to deal with, <laughs> which is a situation, again, where a, a weak, fragile character who is in- inadequately prepared to deal with the situation has no choice but to defend the kids and is forced into a to, um, direct confrontation with something which is yeah, beyond his ability to... Um, to actually resolve. How about you personally? What was your deepest peek into the void? Um, there have been a number of odd moments in life. I mean, you know, be it um, swimming off um, the Great Barrier Reef and looking down into the unutterable depths of the pure ocean mm-hmm. and those beams glittering up out of the dark, or whether it wasn't in Afghanistan running away from um, the provincial capital when it was in flames and looking back and seeing how the 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 plume of smoke rising from the burning city was filling um, two-thirds of the sky and looked like some kind of behemoth climbing out of the earth, which scared me enough that I wanted to run very far the other way. Um, in my p- personal experience, my um, mother, who first brought me the brought Lovecraft's work to my attention, 
was a very tough lady, and she took um, about 10 years to um, die of um, lymphoma. Mm. Um, she refused to give up, and um, during that process, I got to observe how the, um, the condition affected her psychology and, and her body, and how she gra gradually mutated into something that scarcely um, resembled the person we knew before, which informs a... Um, without wanting to spoil too much, a big chunk of, um, of color out of space, which re revolves around that issue of um, whether one, at what point you have to stop loving your loved ones or um, how long you can um, keep feeding and hydrating them and whether it's not a kindness to um, pull the plug instead, which is yeah, a decision that um, Nathan tries to duck around at various points in the second half of color out of space. Well, personal tragedy feeds so much art and storytelling and that sort of thing and gives it a veracity and a depth that you don't just get from your mainstream storytelling. Absolutely, and um, Lovecraft presents certain problems to um, contemporary adaptations, partly because his work comes from the 1920s, Color Out of Space is written in 1926, and since uh, there's a lot of ideas in, in, the, in his material which are in some ways um, repugnant to us now, there's elements of racism, of um, misogyny, um, a, a general misanthropy where he mistrusts human beings, uh, himself included, and his humans scarcely register as characters in his stories. He's quite capable of um, killing the children and the family in just a few words and then spending mm -hmm. um, three paragraphs describing the trees. <laughs> so, um, yes, um, priorities. <laughs> yeah, part, part of the challenge in this was to try to um, open up a dialogue with him by um, introducing some kind of human element. And all the way through, I thought, okay, what if this was happening to my own family? What if these characters weren't just ciphers? What if these were my own children or my own mother? Uh, and that gave me, I think, an emotional touchstone to try and um, deal with the ultra-dimensional um, cosmic forces that were tearing them apart. Well, there is an unusually rich emotional core that you don't find in the literary works of Lovecraft that is the heart of this movie. Yeah, that was essential to me, and I think that was throughout the process that was a way of trying to reconnect Lovecraft again to to the present. I wanted um, the issues that he raises, the um, the, the the great old ones, these mm -hmm. ultra impartial, ultra-dimensional deities that in color out of space aren't even named, um, that are so abstract and far from our experience that we can't conceive or imagine them, and with things which may have actually created the human race or our world without even being aware of it and could just as easily obliterate us. So, um, Well, something that also brings it to the fore is... You had to have great actors to be able to portray this. And these days, Nicolas Cage being a great actor, once you cast Nicolas Cage, there's a feeling on the audience's behalf that things are going to get crazy. And indeed, they do. But Jolie Richardson also brings a grounding to this that you don't often get from a genre film. And, and that, I think, is one of the important things about the filmmakers within the genre who really come from an emotional place and a, a, a personal place and a place you can tell that you're engaged, your heart and your mind are both engaged in this process of working with actors to create something so emotionally rich. 
Yeah, we're super lucky with our cast on color. Jolie had never made a full-on genre movie before. No. She's kind of stuck her, t- her toe in the swing pool just a little with films like Drowning by Numbers, the Greenaway film, but this is her first time oh, that yeah. she had um, gone into a, 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 into a full-on genre movie with the kind of generic tropes and archetypes that were... Uh, a monster were, movie, A monster movie, sake. indeed. And <laughs> I, I, again, I can't spoil it by saying by, by explaining the Jolie's dramatic arc. No, movie, please don't. But yeah. it was a super tough one for her to take on. It was it took a long time to um, to cast that part just because um, so few people wanted to yeah get involved in something where the arc is is so uh, negative. Um, mm. There's absolutely nothing positive that can be said about the dramatic arcs for most of um, Lovecraft's characters. Death and insanity is usually the, right. the sums the, it up. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, the the only way out. It can't be. It's never a positive learning experience. But I think um, Jolie found it extremely liberating. Uh, and um, once she went all the way into it, um, she started to really enjoy herself. In fact, talking to her since, she's um, now of a, of a frame of mind where she's, she'd, she'd really enjoy doing mocap work or potentially ah. play, doing more creature work, which really? I think should be... Even with the makeup effects and all that yeah. she had to uh, suffer. Well, with. it's very much like mask work. There's, a, yeah. a, a, there's something ultimately extremely... Um, it takes a little more time to get into. <laughs> but again, I guess we're going across the line and oh, yeah, um, yeah, well. yeah, into... Um, <laughs> Well, tell me about working with Nicolas Cage. Is he an actor who welcomes input, or is he the sort of actor who says, don't worry, I know where, what I'm doing? Um, no, Nick's tremendous. He really does um, welcome input and, like myself, believes in using anything that works. So is um, alert to um, the different shifting possibilities on the location on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I like to take the um, what I think of as the Columbo approach to directing, which <laughs> is though to um, make certain that I cover everything in advance and study every single possible aspect of it, but then show up on certain actors if I don't know anything mm-hmm. uh, and haven't really thought about it. Uh, but you have that backup of all the different plans, B, Cs, and Ds in one's mind in case anything goes wrong. And I like to introduce a lot of animals into my work just for that same reason as well, because I find that even having um, three or four alpacas strolling around in the background or unleashing two cats into the frame before it goes also adds some kind of element of spontaneity to the, right. the plan and automatically means that things don't work out exactly as you're expecting them to. But there's a little random element in there. And I think Nick is also able to feed off those things in a, a really nice way. We um, identified in advance several weeks before we started different scenes that we figured we could run with. Um, we knew about the um, the tomato scene and the, um, <laughs> yes. the scene where he freaks out in the car. So they, they, although these come across as spontaneous explosions of insanity in the film, there were there were there was I guess spontaneous outbreaks that we had that pinpointed had thought, in advance, yeah. and we, yeah. we, we 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 knew were coming. Because one part of it also was to try to calibrate the um, the performances so that the film does start out in a deceptively low-key, normal movie manner and um, then does amp up and become progressively more hysterical as it, um, as it goes along. And did you write it uh, or did you shoot in screen order? Did you shoot in context? Um not as much as I would like, mm-hmm. um, mostly because we're tied in by um, Nick's schedule, so we had to shoot Nick's scenes first. So we shot we shot in sequence, where certainly with um, Nathan's scenes for the first four weeks, mm-hmm. and then we had two more weeks in the schedule to um, to shoot other scenes that move, such as the material with um, Ward and Lavinia, the um, the young leads. 
One of the important things, one of the most important things a director has to do is figure out how to approach working with the individual actors. Some actors really want, they want a father, they want a best friend, they want somebody they can rely on and look for their input. Other actors say, I know what I'm doing, don't bother me. Um, and figuring that out. Were, were the styles different that you had to deal with between, for example, Nick and Jolie? Well, it was, I think, difficult for Jolie at first because she was so often called upon to be the um, the counterpoint to mm. uh, to Nick. And I'm looking forward to the DVD and Blu-ray release of this movie because I've been able to put a lot of um, deleted scenes on the ah. um, on the disc, which um, some of which I'm super fond of, where um, this process is even clearer. But um, Jolie often was... Um, I, I, we were joking on set you know, about um, directing by numbers. <laughs> and the notion of giving all of human emotions a number from uh, one to ten. Uh, um, Jolie was sort of persistently around number five or somewhere there under, <laughs> and Nick was sort of striking up to number nine. Uh, oh, he goes um, to 11. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I know there was a day the tomato scene was that we talked about it the night before, and I said, okay, Jolie, you could, uh, tomorrow you're going to go to all the way to ten. <laughs> We're finally going to let you go. <laughs> <laughs> now, who whose idea? I know that uh, Nick had done Mandy for Spectrum, vision and was it their suggestion the company's suggestion or was nicholas your idea um it was a, a bunch of um fortuitous um, events that came into alignment i think when i first wrote the script for some reason i was thinking about hugh grant as my ideal nathan oh my god yeah. i wanted a, a father who was um outwardly would seem um like a true a genuinely good man and a, um, a reliable dependable um, pillar Charming. of the community yeah. um which um, so that was i think more like the conception at the beginning but then um when um during the shooting of mandy um, the, produ- the producer of Mandy and um, Color Out of Space, Josh Waller, um, in conversation with Nick, became aware that um, Nick was a huge Lovecraft fan uh-huh. of his collection of Arkham House originals. And, um, and of course, Nick's sort of, I think Nick's favorite movie is um, Ordinary People. He's a huge fan of dysfunctional um, family melodramas. So um, Josh said, if I got a script for you and pressed um, <laughs> Color Out of Space into his hands, uh, um, then um, the next thing I knew was I got a, a phone call at about two in the morning at my my home in the French Pyrenees, coming from um, this guy claiming to be Nick Cage in a bar in Nevada, um, <laughs> wanting to make my movie, which was a, a surreal state of affairs. I, I reacted <laughs> I with some um, skepticism at the time. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, there's a big block of time between uh, Dr. Moreau and Color Out of Space, where there's not a Richard Stanley feature film. There's documentaries, there's Trapped Ashes, or, or there's a, a Theater Bazaar, and, you know, pieces. Tell me what life was like in between these movies. Yeah, Moreau was a very um, Conradian experience. It was a very, like something mm. else. It was like being trapped you went in a up sort the of, river, yeah. yeah, a sci-fi horror version of a Joseph Conrad novel. Um, by the end of um, the Moreau experience, because I technically hadn't broken contact c- contracts and had actually not um, done the thing they could technically fire me for, um, New Line were forced to pay me my full fee as writer and director, and I was I was handsomely paid. Uh, but at the same time, I signed a um, non-disclosure agreement. So um, for a while, for the next 
10, 15 years after Moreau, there was no reason for me to have to seek employment. Ah. Uh, it enabled me to um, basically, it liberated me from having to work for a living. But during that time, too, let's talk a little about that living in the uh, forest and living in caves and things. Yeah, of course, I, although I finally was yeah, relatively affluent enough not to have to um, worry about where the next meal was coming from, um, I was also um, so, I guess, spiritually gutted by the experience that I was in a, a pretty um, dark and unhappy place. So um, I stayed on in the rainforest for a while in Australia and then ended up going back to Africa for a while. My first move was to um, go to, um, ended up in Uganda working in a, um, a chimpanzee sanctuary in Entebbe oh. just because I was, tr I guess, trying to apologize to um, Mother Nature for having hmm. dragged the multinational um, production of Moreau through Aboriginal sacred land in, oh, in far right. north Queensland. And after, after Moreau, I felt to some, I had to somehow put something back into the pot. And um, there was a, um, a sort of halfway house for um, traumatized chimpanzees near Entebbe airport um, when they um, capture chimpanzee babies they always kill the parents and oh. the uh, when um, the baby chimpanzees are caught by um, by customs people and uh, as they try and smuggle them out of Africa they can't repatriate them anywhere so the idea was to create a, um, a halfway house for um, orphan chimps so they could be um, gradually taught how to um, fend for themselves before oh, being repatriated back to an island in Lake Victoria. Mm. It was the time of the Rwandan genocides and um, no one knew for sure what was happening with the mountain gorilla population in oh, the, in God, the windy yes. impenetrable forest in the Virunga Mountains so I, I wandered down there for a while and um, had my quintessential King Kong Diane Fossey experience by mm. uh, yeah, finally um, getting to um, to meet the um, the big apes out in the uh, out in the rainforest and um, felt that I'd been sufficiently humbled they didn't tear me apart for um, wow. <laughs> or punish me for my sons um, I drifted from there into documentary work I, I was lucky enough to be um, hired by B the BBC by BBC television to go to Haiti. I ended up in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, initially of a commission to cover the um, the yearly voodoo festivals mm. in, in Haiti. And then when um, the United States deposed Aristide, then leader of Haiti, and occupied the island, I was um, in an ideal position to cover the American occupation. So I um, had a nice gig for um, British television at that point of suitable press accredi accreditation and found myself slipping back into um, covering war zones after um, mm. Rwanda and Haiti. So mm. you've seen a lot of the dark side of the moon. Yeah, it was a Conradian experience for sure, uh, too far upriver. Um, it's um, partly due to my um, great-great-grandfather, um, Sir Henry Morton Stanley, um, who's a, um, an African explorer who... Um, Sadly, had a hand in the in the foundation of the um, the Belgian Congo oh under dear. King Leopold, which mm -hmm. saw some of the worst of the colonial um, atrocities, and also helped to polarize the <laughs> the Hutu and Tutsi populations in Rwanda, thus laying the um, the foundations for the genocide. Um, so I felt a sort of personal involvement in that and uh, in trying to cover it. In the midst of all that, became. Um, was hired by Channel 4 Television to um, research essentially the backstory to Raiders of the Last Ark. Hmm. We had a hit documentary of something called the Rel Jurassic Park about retrieving dinosaur DNA from amber. And they thought we could reproduce this by doing a Rel Raiders of the Last Ark. And they sent me to Europe to um, 
research to try to find the surviving members of the um, the Nazi archaeological unit from the nineteen oh thirties, and to see if we could get these folk to consent to be interviewed for television. Um, and um, were you successful? To an extent, I was. Uh, and this quest uh, into Europe, I guess, led to me um, settling in my current home. Uh, it was um, the um, the work of the, of an, a man named Otto Rahn, the um, r- the resident Nazi Grail historian, that um, drew the the castle of Montsegur in um, the French Pyrenees to my attention. Hmm. I'd never heard of the place before, and um, because all of the Nazi archaeological research it was was essentially damned information stuff that had been tidied into the the mass grave of the rest of the Nazi pseudoscience and tainted of its association with the 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 um Hitler dictatorship it meant that um conventional historians and academics hadn't really given it um fair analysis so uh, um the more i read of the material the more i wanted to find out firsthand um what was tr- what was real and what wasn't so um I followed the um, the Grail historian's instructions uh, and um, went to the castle of Montsegur in the south of France and discovered to um, my surprise and incredulity that um, a large part of um, what Otto had said was in fact true. And I then got, found myself getting sucked more and more deeply into the um, the local mystery. And, um, in, and that's where you chose to live? Yeah, in 2007, I decided that um, whatever was going on in the mountain in Montsegur was arguably um, more important than anything else I had cooking in the rest of my life. And I um, gave up my um, my flat in London and moved full-time to the mountain just so that I could um, do my bit to protect the castle and to um, observe what was going on there. And then from 2007 through to till um, 2019, I lived as a um, yeah, virtual recluse on the mountain. And you have all of this experience around the globe that you bring into your art. Yeah, it certainly informs uh, um, even color out of space. There's a number of events in um, color which are, are drawn partly on uh, on real life. Um, the um, Ezra, the the Tommy Chong character, yes, is um, very closely based on a local um, bush shaman character, a, a, a hippie squatter character in real life who um, lived for thirty years at the base of the plateau in a cottage he built for himself, and who was the wow. only person I've ever come across who um, who truly believed in Lovecraft's old ones, and who celebrated Yogg-Sothoth Day once a year, and wow. um, had a battered um, French language translation of the Necronomicon that he worked from. I, I never had the heart to tell him that um, it was fictional. Um, <laughs> um, in, in a way, in a way, it didn't matter. It was such a, a joy to observe how uh, completely out of control some of that material had become on the ground. That, what a great um, character! And Tommy Chong is great in the part. He's really good. But shamanism has played a part in a lot of your work. Yeah, I've always been a fan. I guess it comes from studying anthropology at mm-hmm. um, at college, right back at the beginning. And um, I do think that um, movie making is kind of a um, a dive into the collective unconscious. 
that it's we're kind of part of an act of um, of shared dreaming in a way. It's as if um, the public's dreams have been displaced into the media, and I find you can usually tell a lot about what's really been going on in the culture when you look at their movies afterwards. At the time, it's quite hard to see, but when you look back in hindsight at um, the zeitgeist of films from the 1930s or immediately pre-war and things, you could honestly see a lot of what's going on in um, the mass unconscious. I Definitely. think the, the kind of movies we're getting now and the fact that we're um, currently weirdly facing a, an H.P. Lovecraft boom, a, a huge <laughs> revival of interest in his work now in 2020, almost 100 years after his death. We're looking at very shortly the, um, the Jordan Peele um, Lovecraft country on television. Um, and uh, it's just been announced that you're doing Dunwich Horror. That's right. And I, I, I also hear that um, Benioff and Vice, the Game of Thrones impresarios, have backed away from the Star Wars, um, the poison grail of the Star Wars franchise. Mm. And having done <laughs> that and now saying, oh, we want to do a Lovecraft thing too. Oh, good. Why um, not join the party? Uh, yeah, why not join the party? And other, there's Lovecraft's been showing up in everything from um, the lighthouse through to, I think, Cthulhu appears in Underwater, which is oh, um, definitely playing at the yeah. Lights, so um, yeah, you, you, you really can't throw a stick out there without hitting one of the great old ones these days, which says something about this crazy period that we're living in. Well, tell me a little about your plan for Dunwich Horror. I mean, you you've had great success, critical success thus far. We'll see what happens in the release, but it's uh, but Color Out of Space is being so well received. What is your plan for Dunwich? Well, um, I'm delighted that um, Spectrevision have indicated that we're going to go forward with developing two more Lovecraft movies. Oh, how fantastic. That's gonna, that color is, in fact, going to be the first of the trilogy. Nice. And um, my um, instinct is to um, go after um, three of the... Um, the core Lovecraft stories and to try and make certain as in color that we um, we adapt them as closely as possible to screen and um, find a way of um, translating um, Lovecraft's ideas to the um, the 21st century. As in Color Out of Space, that I'm going to update them all to the present day. Um, our Dunwich takes place maybe seven years after the events in um, Color Out of Space. Again, Is the script written for Dunwich? I'm halfway through at the moment. Ah, uh, it's, it's going extremely well. Um, I don't want to um, say too much about the... Are you writing with your partner as you did on Color Out of Space? Um, so far, not. Ah, um, there's a different, There's a different mix at work here. But I may bring in another writing partner later in the process because this time around with... Um, with Dunwich, we finally we finally get a chance to go back on campus. Mm. So a big part of the events is set in Muscatonic University. Yeah, so the big for, U. <laughs> yeah, for the first time since um, the reanimator cycle, we get to go back to Muscatonic. And um, what's the third part of the trilogy? I can't talk about that. Right okay. <laughs> right. um, part of the reason is because um, thanks to... Um, the woeful state of Lovecraft's legal affairs, um, pretty much all of his work is in public domain, Yes, which means anyone can make any of these movies any time they want. There's absolutely no um, copyright protection. Um, we had to face that in Masters of Horror when we did Dreams in the Witch House, working out all of that legal mishigas that what is it in public domain or isn't it? And it, 
this was 15 years ago, and it was decided that it was. Yeah, it's, uh, that was what we found on Colorado Space and Dunachara. The problem being that if you give people sufficiently, um, a sufficiently long lead in and tell them what you're going to be doing in three years' time, it gives them the chance to make it first. <laughs> to make a case. So, so we have to yeah. keep, keep relatively quiet about um, the trajectory of Fair where enough. this is going. But I think you can probably guess. Uh, that, um, I think so. The nice thing about Dunwich is that um, it gives us a chance to go to Miskatonic U, but also to bring on the book to bring on the Necronomicon, the um, original grimoire, which is kept under lock and key in the restricted manuscript section, which is really the, um, the, the core text at the center of the whole, the whole mythos. So Fantastic. it's a, a chance to yeah, unpack the, um, the central idea that binds the, um, all of the stories together. Uh, to um, set us up for a, a, a truly apocalyptic third act. <laughs> great. Well, H.P. Lovecraft is in great hands with Richard Stanley. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this could go for two or three hours, but we got to wrap it up now, and I just want to thank you for coming on board. Oh, glad you left the show, and um, it's I been an truly... honor and a privilege being here. Uh, so. Oh, for me as well. Thank you, Richard. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to Producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, MickGarrisInterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.